session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show and suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Before I begin with the book summary for the book of this past week, I wanted to announce the book for this coming week which is The Evolution of Desire by David M. Buss. The Evolution of Desire by David M. Buss. So I hope you'll join me in reading that book. I'll make sure to post a picture of the book to my uh, different social media so you can make sure you're getting the correct book. Because actually I found out that the book I had for this past week after the affair, when I Googled it one time, there was another book with the same title, just a different subtitle underneath it. So uh, I'll make sure to post that picture by tomorrow so you can hopefully make sure you get that same book and read it with me this week. And I'll discuss it next Monday. And of course, that book, The Evolution of Desire, very much relates to this past week's book, After the Affair, Healing the Pain and Rebuilding Trust When a Partner Has Been Unfaithful. And the author is Janice Abrams Spring. So as the title implies after the affair. Uh, This book is about couples who would like to work on the relationship and rebuild the relationship after one partner has been unfaithful. And it's an intense subject. Even when I just mentioned the title of this, (laughs) the book for this week, I would see people almost get nervous. It just, uh, it brings up anxiety. It brings up a lot of issues. It's a very hot button issue. Um, and I hadn't read this book, but I'd heard a lot about it. And because affairs, uh, unfortunately, are more common than we'd probably like for them to be, I thought it was good to read this book to see what this author, who has lots of experience with couples and in particular with infidelity, has to say about that. So the book is called After the Affair. Um, and to begin with, she does talk about how there's statistics on infidelity. And of course, as you can imagine, it's hard to really say that it's going to be an accurate estimate because if people are willing, as she says, to lie to their partners, we can imagine they might lie to the researcher too when they're asked the question, have you been unfaithful? But according to one study that she cites, uh, as many as 37% of married men and 20% of married women have been unfaithful. Um, now, again, we might even say that's probably an underestimate, but again, that's more than one in three men and one out of every five women, according to this study. So it's definitely affecting a lot of people. Now, the book has three different parts, or she calls them stages. The first one is reacting to the affair, is what I'm feeling normal. And she describes her terminology as the hurt partner, is the one that was uh, cheated on, or their partner was unfaithful. And then there's the unfaithful partner, who was the one 
who committed the infidelity. And she goes through both partners' uh, responses or what they might respond so people recognize that what might be normal. Because when someone learns that their partner has been unfaithful, as she talks about, they're in a state of shock. Um, of course, there can be denial. They feel like their world is falling apart. Lots of hurt feelings affects their self-esteem. It affects so much. Uh, they even can question God and if there was a fair God, how could this happen to me? But it's a very, as we would imagine, unsettling and difficult time for someone to deal with. And so she outlines that. And then she also talks about what the unfaithful partner might be experiencing, including their choice, because sometimes people who start an affair decide to stay with that person. So in a sense, they have that choice which is one thing the hurt partner really doesn't have as far as choosing someone else at that moment. But the hurt partner also has a choice as well, which is what the second segment of the book is about. Should I stay or leave? Reviewing your options. And that's very important because you really have to think about it, and it's an individual decision. Can I stay with this person? Will I be able to um, forgive them? You'll never forget but forgive at least enough. As the book describes, forgiveness itself is not a 100% black and white light switch type of a thing that you just forgive and then it's completely done with. But that you have to decide, can I forgive this person and can we have a healthy relationship after what really is a trauma in the relationship, a huge trauma that disrupts the relationship. So you really have to think about that. It's a personal question. No one can tell you whether or not you can do it or you want to do it, it's up to you. She does recommend giving a little bit of time because once you hear about the infidelity, you are in such an emotional turmoil and so much chaos internally that it's not likely you'll be able to make a good decision at that time, but give yourself a little bit of time. But again, you have to decide for yourself. I know for some people they say, I already know it's automatically done with. There's no chance I'm going to make it work. And you're definitely entitled to that opinion. Some people might try to give it a try. Now, of course, what complicates things further, sometimes people have children and commitments, not that you should ever stay together for the kids, but some people decide to work on the relationship together for the kids. So if you're going to stay together and say, I'm not going to get divorced, but I'm going to hate your father or your mother for the rest of our lives and be mad at them and always yell at them or bring this issue up anytime something comes up that bothers me, well, you're not doing your children any favors. Just like staying together for any reason other than making the relationship work is not a good reason. So the second chapter or second segment, I should say, the book really gets into looking at your options because you have to think about it uh, really clearly to make sure you're making that right choice for you. And then stage three, which is the long, longest portion of the book, is recovering from the affair. How do we rebuild our life together? And then she gets into the various aspects of what you need to do or what you uh, really, the different areas you need to look at to help yourself as a couple overcome what you're going through to really rebuild, as she describes it, which is true. It's like there's been something that has made your relationship collapse and you are trying to rebuild and pick up the pieces and, of course, put some new pieces into the building to make something stronger than what you had before. Um, she does talk about some interesting things throughout the book, including even differences between how men and women both relate to affairs when they learn about it and also when they're having it themselves. So for example, when looking at the hurt partner, people who have 
been uh, cheated on. She says, difference number one, women try to preserve the relationship, men turn and run. So she has a woman saying, maybe we can work it out, and the man saying, don't bother to come back. And she makes it very clear that these are not obviously black or white, or you can't generalize it to everyone, but these are trends that she has noticed and sometimes research has even shown. So difference two, women get depressed, men get angry. So the woman says, I failed at the most significant relationship in my life, while the man says, if I run into my wife's lover, I'll kill him. And maybe you can agree with that sentiment that that might be how people would react. Or difference number three, women feel inadequate as companions, men feel inadequate as lovers. So you can see the the emphasis is that the women think they're not being as good of a companion, a good enough partner, while, while the men feel that they are not satisfying their wives sexually, which is interesting because we can see that they're in, a, in essence projecting what they likely want or think is the issue that they might stray. Because as I'll maybe get to later, men tend to stray more for having a companion sexually and to have activities to share with and to feel good about themselves, whereas women are looking for actual companionship, a deeply emotionally connected companionship. So we can see there's some projection here, but women tend to think they're inadequate companions and men think they're being inadequate lovers. And there are other differences now from the other side. If you are the one having the affair, for example, she says women, as I just said, they tend to seek soulmates, men seek playmates. So the woman says, I finally found someone I can op open up to. The man says, my lover and I share so much sex, tennis, jazz. So it's more about the activities and things they can do. Now, here's another interesting one that she points out. Women believe their affair is justified when it's for love. Men, when it's not for love. So the woman says, but I loved him. And the man says, but I didn't love her. Here it's emphasizing that the for the woman, she's saying the relationship was justified because of how I felt about and felt with my new lover. And the man is saying, well, I just wanted sex outside of the relationship. And that's maybe even okay and quote unquote natural. So I didn't do anything bad. So almost to the man, it seems okay if he didn't love the person to have the affair. And again, these are generalizations. You might have that exact opposite reaction in a man and a woman in a certain couple, but here's some things she has noticed. Now, as she explains, when someone has an affair in a relationship, although you can't blame the partners equally, and she makes that very clear, if you are wanting to work on the relationship, you have to recognize that both of you have to work on the relationship and recognize that it's possible that what the affair is telling you is that your relationship was missing something. Now, I think it should be added that sometimes people do cheat just to cheat, or it's not necessarily because the relationship wasn't working. Even sometimes a relationship that's working very well, if someone has a strong fear of intimacy or has some issues of their own, they might actually stray because things are too good and calm and peaceful. So it's not always because things are going bad that someone is going to stray. So I want to make that point very clear because she talks about this a lot in the book. And usually it is the case that something is not healthy in the relationship that makes someone want to turn to someone else and bring quote unquote, a third person into the relationship. 
but it's not fair to say that it's always the case. And as she puts it, it doesn't mean that in any way it's justified or justifiable to have an affair. So you can't say my relationship is so bad, I have to have an affair. No. Um, and if anything, and what I'll likely do is I'll talk another segment about this book because there is so much to unpack and it is such a sensitive issue. Um, but uh, if anything, what you should recognize, and she touches on this, but I think it's very important to touch on, is that if you feel yourself having the desire to stray, that should be a red flag to you that something's up. Now, it's possible something is up with you. You are have some relational issues, self-esteem issues, intimacy issues that make you feel this way, sexual addiction, whatever the case may be. But also, and very likely, there's some issues in your relationship that you need to work on. And that's what it should be a red flag for. Not, I need someone else, or I need someone new, or all relationships get boring, and this is the best you can hope for, so I have to have a relationship to keep myself happy but rather recognizing, no, this is telling me something is wrong with this relationship. Something is not quite working out if I'm feeling this desire to be with someone else. That being said, the attraction to other people is natural. We're human beings. If you're heterosexual, you're going to be attracted to members of the opposite sex. If you're homosexual, you're going to be attracted to members of your own sex. Um, and if you're bisexual, you might be attracted to both. But regardless of whether or not you're in a relationship, you won't automatically now stop thinking people are attractive. That's not really how it works. But then your desire to be with them and how you act on it, that is what is in your control and what you want to pay attention to. So this book is called After the Affair. So of course, it's talking to couples who have had an affair and infidelity within the relationship. But I also think it's very important um, for there to be books called Before the Affair. Because looking at before the affair happens, or if you're a partner thinking about having an affair, what can you do or what should you do to help you recognize, okay, maybe I shouldn't go forward with this relationship. Because sometimes when I read books like this, or I've heard people talk about infidelity, uh, psychologists, therapists, they can almost condone it, not directly because they say infidelity is bad, you shouldn't do it, but indirectly in how they talk about how much you can learn about your relationship and how almost it could be a good thing, that I think it could send the wrong message. Now, I get it. If someone is given lemons, they should make lemonade. So if you've been given the situation where a partner has been unfaithful, yes. Now, if you want to stay together, you have to make a, the best of this bad situation. And it is possible. Very difficult, but it is possible. But at the same time, when you make it seem that it can be such a good thing after the fact, even in this book, a few times I felt that message was given. Again, because it's given to these couples who have experienced it. But if you have not yet experienced it, I think it can actually serve to make people feel that it's a little bit more okay. And I think that's something worth thinking about. So I didn't think of that title till I was just saying it now on the air, but I think it'd be nice if there's a book called Before the Affair that really looked at that too. What can you do if you're realizing you're having a desire for an affair? And maybe there is a book out there. I can imagine there is. There's so many self-help, psychology, relationship books out there. Maybe there is, and I'll do some research on that. So that was a little bit of my own thoughts. But after the break, I'll talk a little bit more about the book from this past week, which is After the Affair by Janice Abrams Spring. If you want to 
call with the Welcome back. Our studio number is 310-441-0555. I'm talking about the book After the Affair by Janice Abrams Spring. Now, the third section, as I mentioned in the first segment, is about rebuilding the relationship. Uh, if you've decided that, okay, we're going to try to make it work, let's work on the relationship. Now, one thing she says is necessary is that the person who is has been unfaithful, <clears throat> excuse me, cut ties and end the relationship with um, their lover, the person they're having the affair with. It might seem obvious, but sometimes people think, well, I need to still figure some things out or, or see what I really feel. But really, if you want to work on the relationship that you have your marriage, you have to end that relationship. And if possible, completely cut ties with them and communication. The reason why I say is if possible, sometimes you might be working with that person. And even still, as she talks about in the book, you might have to consider changing jobs or changing departments in your work or whatever it is. So you're not interacting with that person if that's what your partner wants. And that guess, I guess I can open up the dialogue of how difficult it is to rebuild the trust and rebuild the relationship after a bomb like an affair has taken place it's very difficult to do and it's going to take both partners to make that happen now there's a tendency for the person who has been unfaithful to want this process to be a little bit faster or quicker let's say they've gotten rid of their lover and they want to work on things they kind of want to move on of course because they feel guilty and they're in essence, sitting in the stew of their guilt and what they did. So they don't want to have this process drag on. But unfortunately, what that can lead to is them almost trying to push or force their partner into forgiveness and trusting them. Okay, okay, I already admitted it to you. Let's get over it. Why are you still making it a big deal? Why do you keep bringing it up? Um, and then also, why are you still suspicious of me? I'm not doing anything. And that doesn't help. So if you're the partner who's been unfaithful, you have to recognize that although you might be at a place ready to move on from this, although you really should think very closely about are you ready to move on and move into a different type of relationship with your partner, but you have to really understand that your partner who has been hurt is going to need more time than you. And to really ask for forgiveness, you are willing to give them the time it takes to forgive you and recognize that rebuilding trust takes time. Now, when it comes to rebuilding trust, very often what partners need to do, and she talks about it in the book and walks you through it, is recognize there might be some more short-term, you don't have to necessarily put a time limit on it, but short-term behaviors and things that you do to help you rebuild the trust. Because trust is built and earned, not just given. So especially after something like this, it's that rupture in the trust means it's going to be even harder to build and will be likely a slow process. So this could be things like the partner might say, I'd like to have all the passwords to your email and, and social media accounts. Um, or I'd like for you to come home during lunch for work. Or, um, you know, if you ever get contacted by your former lover, I want to know. I don't want it to be a secret. And that's an important one because what can happen is if you think, well, it's not a big deal, even if you really are over the person or not thinking about the relationship, but later on your partner sees that there was a text message between you and that person or somehow comes up. Now they're going to think you're hiding something. And of course, 
in some ways, rightfully so, they're already going to be suspicious of you, and especially with that particular person. So they're not going to be uh, very happy, and they're going to take that as a threat and might think more is going on. Why did you hide it from me? So she goes through, and that's, I think, what the book is very good at, is looking at the different steps or different phases of the relationship, and that includes, very importantly, trust is a big one. Another big one is the sexual relationship. That can be a very delicate thing to try to get back in the right place after one partner especially has been sexually uh, unfaithful. So there's that also. Also how to talk about the affair itself, she talks about. Um, also learning to forgive, and she walks you through that. And then also there's a chapter related to affairs in cyberspace, so online affairs, which is becoming more common. And actually, she says when she wrote the first edition of this book, there really wasn't even an internet, or there barely was. But now this is becoming a very common way for lots of things to happen, including uh, relationships to be formed. But so she walks you through different aspects of the relationship and how you're going to have to rebuild it slowly but surely and be ready to be patient. But also, when you look at the affair itself, and she talks about this throughout the book, it has to serve as a wake-up call that something or things were not right in the relationship. Again, as I said in the first segment, that doesn't have to be the case, and it's not fair to make the blame equal, which she mentions in the book. The person who has strayed has to take that responsibility that they didn't have to act, and they did something. But nonetheless, once you've decided to work on the relationship, you have to recognize, okay, some things were not okay in our relationship, and we need to work on them. What was missing? Were we not close enough? Um, was one partner's insecurities causing some issues? Was one partner wanting too much closeness? One partner wanting too much distance? What are our patterns? What were the different things going on? What can we learn from this? And that's why, as I was saying before the break, when you find yourself attracted to someone else and really desiring more than just attraction, desiring, and then pursuing someone else, you have to think about, well, what is drawing me towards this person? What's missing in my own relationship that I'm trying to get from this person? And now if you've had the affair, now you can use that information to help create a better relationship with your partner and hopefully rebuild something stronger than what you had before. What I also like that she does in a lot of these sections is she talks about assumptions or myths that people might have, some of which might contribute to the affair actually, but also to difficulties in recovering from the affair. Because it's very important for us to have realistic expectations about relationships, about love, about sex, and even our own well-being. Because, for example, if we think in a relationship, um, for example, we should never fight. Well, then if you start fighting, you think, oh, me and my husband or me and my wife are not meant to be, or this is a real bummer or a problem. Or things should always go well or smoothly. Or I shouldn't have to tell my partner what I want or need, what makes me unhappy he or she should just be able to know. These myths that we can hold on to and the ways we think about love can really harm our relationship and also make us more likely to go outside because we think we're not getting enough here, we need something else. Or when it comes to sex, to think we're going to want to have sex with the same amount of frequency and if we don't, something's wrong. Or that we should know how to please each other. If we don't, that means we're not meant to be sexually or there isn't sexual chemistry. That absolutely is not the case. Most people are not educated enough about sex, their own body, 
the bodies of the opposite sex and how pleasure is different for the sexes and how they might experience it differently. And also each individual is unique. Each person has different things that turn them on, things that turn them off, things they like to be done to them, things they like to do, things they really don't like to do. And we can't expect whatsoever that the partner is going to just know them or should know them. And here's one of those areas of uncomfortable conversations that I always encourage people and couples to have that you absolutely need to have as partners. We, you need to talk about your sex life. How pleased are you with it? How displeased are there things about it you like, don't like from frequency to things you do, everything you can think of, put it out there in the open and talk about it and understand that you're not supposed to know. And if you're the partnered and you're, your husband or wife is telling you, here's something about our sex life I don't like, don't take it personally. Again, you're not supposed to just know it. And it doesn't make you inadequate or a bad lover. And if you want to tell your partner, make sure you put it in a way that's not personal. You make it about you. I like this, or this feels good for me, or this doesn't feel good for me. It's about that person and their unique um, sexual sexuality and how they experience it. And you need to talk about it. So don't be afraid to have those conversations. And if this book, if anything, even if you haven't had an affair, I think it's very good that it gives you lots of different information about things couples should talk about. Even before, hopefully anyone has an affair in your relationship, you can talk about these things. You don't need to wait till that point. And you've heard me many times talk about have uncomfortable conversations. I say it over and over again. Well, here's yet another reason. Have uncomfortable conversations in your relationship because it could potentially prevent an affair from happening in your relationship. I'm not just saying have uncomfortable conversations because I like to see people get nervous and uncomfortable. I say it because I know it can help preserve a relationship. It can help maintain a relationship, strengthen a relationship, and prevent it from going down the wrong road. So we need to have conversations about these types of things, but especially if you've experienced an affair, you need to have these delicate and sensitive conversations. And the book does a good job of walking you through different aspects of that. Now, that being said, although the book I think could be a great tool and a great aid for a couple who is recovering from an affair, I absolutely don't think it's enough. Meaning that if you have had infidelity in your marriage, your relationship, you shouldn't just have this book. I think you should get this book, but also seek out couples therapy because you shouldn't think you can do it by yourself. And I think you're much less likely to succeed if you try to do it on your own. So this book, After the Affair by Janice Abrams Spring, I think is a wonderful book and for anyone to read, I thought it was a lot of good information. Like I said, not just for couples who've experienced infidelity, but for all couples. Um, but if you have experienced an affair in your relationship, absolutely seek out therapy if you're trying to make it work. Or even if you haven't, you likely will need it to help you recover from what you have been through. Now, something she does mention in the book, which I think is very important for people to keep in mind, is this illusion we can have of this other person. So when people are unfaithful, even before there's the desire starts to build up, very often and almost always there's an idealization of that person because you usually don't know them very well. Just like if you meet someone new but don't get into too much contact with them, you only text them or you're very long distance and you only have some phone calls or you um, see them online, you can start to build this illusion. In affairs, it's the same thing. You're almost in this different world. And you think everything is so great with this person because 
you only experience this person in small doses. Also, because it's forbidden, it adds this level of excitement to everything. Every interaction has this forbidden nature and this we're doing something wrong. And it makes it so much more right in how it feels when it's really not true. So people very often are having these relationships with someone outside of their marriage and they think, oh, if only my wife or my husband made me feel this way. Well, part of the reason that person makes you feel this way is because of the context of this relationship you're creating. And also the way you're seeing each other. You sneak away and go to a hotel just for one night and then you don't see each other the next day. Or you have a weekend together some way, sneak away and no one else knows, just you and the other person. And it's in these, again, small doses usually. Whereas with your partner, you have to deal with your mortgage and maybe kids and picking them up for soccer practice and doing laundry. All those tedious things that take away or can in some ways impede some parts of the passion, you don't have that with the person you're having an affair with. It's just all the fun stuff. And it's all new and usually don't know each other as well as you think. So very often, and I didn't find statistics on this, but people who stay with the person they had an affair with because they think, oh, this is the love of my life and the person I'm supposed to be with. Once they're with that person, it usually doesn't seem as magical as they thought it was because then they come back to reality. And I say that not say all this not just to talk about how the person you're having an affair with is not that great, but to hopefully get people to recognize if you haven't had an affair, but you're thinking about it and you have this other person you're thinking about or flirting with or see yourself getting closer to, just remember that a lot of what you see in this person is your own projection and idealization. And the fact that it is forbidden makes it much more exciting than it actually is. There's much less there than what you think there is. And a last note just about infidelity, and she touches on this in the book or talks about it in the book, what is infidelity or what is an affair? Because sometimes we can think it's only sexual intercourse. And this came up during the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal, where it was said that because they only had oral sex, there was no uh, affair. And I think most people would laugh at that or disagree with that. But an affair is very much, or I would say many steps before that. And to define it in a way that gives it some, uh, some, I guess, clarity. It's anytime you break the contract between two partners of things that they can or cannot do with other people. So, and uh, what that means is it's not just sex or even kissing. It could even be flirting or engaging in some kind of relationship with someone, whether it's emotional or otherwise. And that's an issue I didn't get into emotional affairs, um, affairs that don't have any physical contact, but are emotionally uh, engaging between two members. But one way to gauge this is if you're not willing to do something in front of your partner that you're doing with someone from the opposite sex, that would tell me you're being unfaithful. You're doing something you know is wrong. If you go to a party and your wife's not there and you're flirting with a lot of girls, but you know if that she was there, you wouldn't do that, then you're being unfaithful. You're doing something that breaks that bond and that contract between you and your partner. And so that's a good way to ask yourself, is what I'm doing okay? Unfortunately, most people, or not most people, many people, I could say it that way, have this mindset that if I'm not caught, it's okay. Or if she doesn't know or he doesn't know, somehow it makes it okay. And absolutely not. Anytime you break that contract, you yourself have done it, When even when you're by yourself. And so that's, to me, how you measure an affair, not just by physical or sexual contact. There's many steps before that. 
And so if you find yourself hiding something, hiding text messages from someone from work or not telling your partner about someone from work or not telling that person about your partner, even if you talk to them a lot, those are signs that something is going on. So you can be unfaithful with many steps before having a sexual relationship with someone and it's between you and your partner what is and what is not okay someone might say you know if you're at a party and you talk to a few people and you're a little flirty i'm okay with that you're having fun and i don't mind someone else might say that's absolutely not okay with me and in that case infidelity would be different for those two couples but it's something that they should agree upon together so that'll conclude the discussion of the book but if you want to talk about the book or have any other questions we can talk after the break studio number 3104410555 you're listening to in session with dr fatty tulakwi welcome back to in session with dr fatty tulakwi today i t- discussed the book after the affair by janice abrams spring and a big issue in this uh topic related to the affairs is trust and rebuilding trust is very difficult for couples who have undergone an infidelity within their relationship but that also makes us think about well, what helps us build trust to begin with of course after the affair that rupture can be very difficult but to build trust or to look at trust we have to see how it's built to begin with now trust is not an all or nothing thing Um, You don't just trust everyone blindly 100%. You don't trust everyone in your life equally. You don't trust strangers the same way you would trust your family members. And even within your family, you're not going to trust everyone the same. So how is that so and why is that so? So trust is earned, not given. You don't just have it because you exist. You have to earn my trust just like I have to earn yours. Now, to begin with, we have to have a small amount of trust. So the way we see the world, hopefully, is that we have a level of trust that we give to most individuals. We assume they have good intentions. We assume that they are good people. And that is the truth most of the time. Um, And we have to start from there. We can't assume everyone is a cheater. Everyone is bad. Everyone is... Um, going out to get us. And some people do have that mindset. So to begin with, some of us are more trusting than others. And people who are generally suspicious would think that the people are trusting, who are trusting are naive. But you need to have some level of basic trust for people in the world in order just to create relationships, to so even start that process of a relationship and to build trust. So a way we can look at this, how it builds is, for example, if Someone you don't know, or if you're in a small group and someone says, can you lend me $20 and I'll pay you back in two days? You might accept $20 as a request. But if that same person said, hey, can you give me $10,000 and I'll pay you back in two days? You're likely not even going to think about it and just say no to them. Now, the $20 you might accept if you say, okay, maybe I can trust this person. We'll come back in two days. And if in two days they bring you back the $20, and they seem to do it in a nice, respectful way, you might feel like, okay, now I can lend them $30 or $40. We can give them more. So the more people show us that they're reliable or they're trustworthy, the more trust we put in them, where we'll give them and the more we're willing to do for them, with them, and in relationship with them. But now when we look at building trust in relationships, we 
look a lot at how trust can be destroyed, as discussed today, having an affair or different ways, lying and different things we can do to destroy the trust. But we know that in general, things are a lot harder to build than they are to destroy. You can um, build a building and take years to build it, but one bomb can destroy the whole building. You can build a trusting relationship for 30 years and one infidelity, just a minute, just even a few seconds, can destroy that trust. So when you're building trust and when you're building a relationship, this is something to keep in mind that it has to be built and your trust worthiness is something that your partner is going to observe from day one. And this is why one of the important ways of, of building trust is to keep your word, how insignificant it might seem. So you tell someone, you know, I'm, I'm working on something. I'm going to call you tonight. Now, all of us will have moments where we forget. So not saying it's black or white, you can never make mistakes like this, but how reliable and how consistent you are with this is an important way that you build trust. When someone say, sees that when you say something, you do it, you feel more reliable and more trustworthy. You know, when she says something to me, I, I can believe that she's going to follow through. And that means a lot to me. So keeping your word is very, very important in building trust. And again, this starts from the beginning of the relationship. Another reason why I'm very against playing games in a relationship where people think you should pretend like you're going to call or want to talk or don't, but don't do it or don't text even though you can and then make up some excuse. So we're just lying to one another from the beginning or different things that people do just to play these games they think they need to play to get people to like them, not realizing that it can actually affect your trust later on when you recognize the person was lying to you. So keep your promises and keep your word from the beginning of the relationship. Now, what's also interesting is people observe how you are with other people. So if they see you lying to other people, or if they see you giving away secrets, so let's say, you know, my best friend told me not to tell anyone this, but this is what he did, or this happened to his wife. You might think, well, it's about other people. But of course, then the person's going to conclude, well, I wonder what you say about me when I'm not around, or I wonder how much I can trust you with my secrets, or if something comes to my mind and I share it with you, are you going to actually keep your word to me? Again, so it does deal with keeping your word, but being aware of, well, how am I being with other people and in front of my partner? Now, of course, I hope people don't just take this as, okay, now learn to act in this way, something I've talked about before, but genuinely be that way. You should keep the secrets of your potential partner and anyone else, not just to get your partner to trust you, but because it is the right thing to do and do it from the right place. Now, another way that we build trust that might seem a little bit what you're not used to hearing is we need to be willing to embrace conflict and disagreement. And by that, I mean that if you're always just telling someone things are okay, I agree, I don't disagree with you, I'm fine, I'm never upset with you, all those things that maybe on the surface seem very good, what that does is that it makes it very hard for your partner to know what you actually feel and to trust that you're telling them everything you think and feel or being open with them. I shouldn't say, say everything. You're allowed to keep some things private, but that you're being open. If you ask someone, how are they doing? They say, I'm okay. I'm okay. You ask them what they want to do. They say, I don't care. Or they, you ask them if they have a preference. They say, I don't care. If they seem just to agree with whatever you're saying, it's going to be hard for you to know, well, what do they actually think and feel 
or what do they think about this or that? Do they disagree with me? And you're going to have a hard time really trusting them. Now, on the other hand, if someone tells you what they think, even if it's kind of hurtful and you're like, oof, that kind of hurt. I can't, I'm kind of surprised almost that she said that or he said that. But at least you think to yourself, I know what he or she is thinking or feeling. I don't have to question it or I don't have to um, try to figure it out on my own. I know that even if it's uncomfortable, again, going back to uncomfortable conversations, he or she's going to tell me what's going on with them and will share with me. And that way I can actually trust I know. Because if someone is never telling you how they feel, they're holding it all in, it's very difficult for you to trust them. And that's why also being vulnerable, which is related to this, is another way that we build trust. In a way, I'm showing you that I trust you and that I'm also being more transparent and open. So I'm letting you see my insecurities or painful things from my past or letting you know really who I am. Again, the more transparent you are, the more trustworthy you appear because you're showing the person your cards. You're saying, here, this is me. I'm not hiding things from you. I'm not keeping things from you. And also I'm showing you that I have trust in you, that I'm willing to put my trust in you. And that breeds more trust in the relationship when we can be vulnerable. Unfortunately, many people in most relationships, they hold back a lot. They don't embrace conflict or disagreement. They think that a good relationship should always be happy and smooth and no disagreements, even though actually those disagreements, not only can they be not bad, they can actually be very good and make the relationship more exciting when there's something there. Okay, you see it this way, I see it that way, and we'll maintain a very high level of respect for each other while we disagree, but let's kind of quarrel it out, have this disagreement or this argument together and come to a place where we both, even if we agree to disagree, some kind of resolution with what is going on. So we actually need that conflict even to keep the relationship alive, but also for the trust to build. So most, most couples are avoiding these types of conversations and unfortunately it affects the trust they have in their relationship. You don't really know who the other person is and how much you can rely on them and, and, you know, know what's going on with them. Now, also when I talk about disagreeing, people don't feel very good if you disagree with them in public. So it should be something you do when you're alone. People don't like that feeling. They don't know if you're going to respect their feelings. That's another way of trust. Do so I feel like you can trust the person to take care of you in a public situation? So I want to make that clear that by disagreeing with each other, I'm not saying have a big fight in public or to embarrass your partner by saying something to them in public. Absolutely not. That's going to do the opposite of building trust. That's going to hurt your partner and actually make them feel like they can trust you much less. And in general, that's another big thing. Uh, not hurting one another in deliberate ways or not being uh, excessively aggressive or painful towards them or hurtful towards them. Yes, there's going to be things you might say or do that hurts your partner, but if your partner feels like you're intentionally trying to hurt them, that's a very different feeling than you made a comment that they didn't like and they can tell you about that. So when you're looking at your partner and also just when you're trying to be a partner, be aware of that, that if you hurt your partner in intentional ways, or if you're aggressive towards them, then that's going to make you a lot less trusting. How safe can I feel with you when I've seen you hurt me explicitly in public or in private or physically hurt me? Of course, um, I don't think I, it's even necessary to say it, but 
you're not going to have a trusting relationship if one partner is physically abusing the other one or hitting the other person. How safe can I feel? How can I feel you have my best interests at heart when you are literally hurting me regularly? How is that possible? So we can't be hurting one another either. Obviously, that's going to take away from the trust. But I hope people recognize that to build trust, it's a lot more of the subtle things. And if you're with someone and they don't trust you, it's possible they have quote-unquote trust issues, and that's something for each of us to look at. But also it's possible that you're not being a very trustworthy partner. And you have to look at that part from your end. Am I giving my partner a reason and reasons to trust me? Not just, oh, you should trust me because I'm your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Have I been a partner that warrants being trusted or has made myself trustworthy? And of course, looking at trust issues, you should look at your own past. First of all, what were my parents like? We know that Erickson's first stage is trust versus mistrust in the first year of life. So even if you might not be aware of the memories of it, but if you didn't have a very stable first year of your life, that could lead to issues related to trust. But also how consistent were your parents and the primary caregivers throughout your life? Um, were they reliable? Were they there for you? Were they uh, fighting a lot? Was it a chaotic home? Also, was there infidelity in your home? Did one or both of your partner parents cheat on the other parent? That would be something that could create trust issues. And of course, your own relationship history. If you've had infidelity in your past relationships, you more than likely will be more suspicious of others. So it's going to be harder for you to trust. So we have to heal these trust wounds that we have, these pains that we have, because if not, we take them into our next relationships and even a slight poke, even if it actually is nothing, is going to hurt. So we're going to sound the alarm even when there is no alarm or any danger to be had. So if you have these pains in your past relationships, it's very important for you to work them through on your own, but especially through therapy, to forgive the members that have hurt you or the people that have hurt you in the past and to learn that not all people have to treat me that way. And then you will be more likely to create a trusting relationship with a trustworthy partner. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there. Hope you have a wonderful night. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. 